Hi, everyone. Welcome back, and thanks for joining us. I'm Dave Giancola from the USGA, joined, as always, by my colleague and co-host, Mike Trosel. Mike, how are you out there? Dave, doing great. Great to be here. Mike and I are so excited to be joined by Dan Hicks today, whose iconic calls you've heard for decades on NBC, not only at the U.S. Open, of course, but also the Open Championship, Players' Championship, Ryder Cup, Olympics, NFL, college football, NBA, you name it, he's probably done it. You recently heard him call Bryson DeChambeau's 2020 U.S. Open victory at Wingfoot, a place that Dan just so happens to call his home course. And we'll hear him next week down in Houston for the 75th playing of the U.S. Women's open. And with no further ado, Dan, thanks for joining us. How are you? Oh, good, Dave. Mike, uh, good to hear your voices as well. And uh, I'm I'm doing great. Uh, Looking forward to crowning the last major champion of 2020, if you can believe that, a U.S. Women's Open. So it's going to be happy holidays and welcome to champions. Uh, (laughs) I'm looking forward to it. It's been, as you guys know, uh, quite a while since we've last called a a women's open, which Michelle Wee won at Pinehurst when they did those uh, back-to-back uh, U.S. Opens and women's open. So looking forward to doing another women's open. Yep. Yeah, Dan, hard to believe that was six years ago when Michelle won the uh, the back-to-back, but it will be exciting to be down in champions. But but you referenced that it. it's been a little while. It's been six years uh, since the U.S. Open, the women's open, and the suite of USGA championships were on NBC. Where were you this past spring? when you heard that USGA Championships were returning to NBC, and what was your reaction? Well, I, I did get word just a little while before the official announcement came out. In fact, I happened to be playing golf with Pete Pavacqua, who you guys, I'm sure, know well. Yep. And he's a he's a fellow member at, at Wingfoot, and we were playing golf. And this was probably, I want to say, two, three weeks before the official announcement came out. And I had known there were some conversations that were being had between our network and Fox and, and the USGA on the possibility of at the time, I only thought was doing just the one US Open that had been moved from obviously uh, June to September at Wingfoot. So I was didn't want to get overexcited about it because I, I, I knew that, you know, it may happen, it may not happen. So then when he called me aside as we were walking down the fairway, uh, <laughs> I'll never forget the, you know, the, the thrill that went up and down my spine when when he told me that not only were we going to have, we were on the, as he called it, we were on the goal line of getting the, the U S open back, but the entire USGA package. And I just, I can't tell you when you think something's never going to happen again, and you're pretty resigned to the fact that you've done your last U S open it. We did 20 of them. They were incredible women's opens, the whole nine yards, the U S amateur. And when you've done them like that and you, and you lose the package, like we did to Fox, you think, you're just kind of resigned to the fact that that's it. So to have this come back, and I think one of the most unbelievable exchanges of broadcast rights in television sports history, to come back and have it be back with us, it was, I could not believe it. And I really didn't want to believe it until the official announcement came a couple of weeks later, but I'll, I'll never forget the way I felt. You know, you, you do these things, guys, and they get in your blood, they get in your DNA, and they become a part of you. And there was always a missing hole not doing the U.S. Opens and the USGA Championships. So uh, I speak on behalf of our entire team how unbelievably thrilled we were to, to get that package back. 
Yeah, it was a, a wild summer, COVID aside, especially, you know, with the hop over back to NBC and, and a short kind of re-onboarding of NBC. Obviously, you and Tommy Roy uh, know these championships better than anybody, but a quick kind of ramp up and you find yourself out at beautiful Bandon Dunes where Tyler Strafacci takes home the Havemeyer Trophy in the fog, which was quite a way to end an incredible U.S. amateur. And then, you know, I'm sure after you digested that the USGA championships are back on NBC, it then occurs to you, I get to call a U.S. Open at my home course. I mean, <laughs> and what's that like when that hits you? And maybe you might be the best analyst on the team, too, because <laughs> safe to say you've probably played that course more than any of your colleagues on the announce team. Well, there's no doubt about that. I don't know how well I've played it. <laughs> the, way, the, the quality of play that uh, has been exhibited by my fellow colleagues who are a lot better golfers than I am when I've had them as guests over there, but I tell you guys, you know, you, you get in this business, uh, you know, and you've been in it as long as I have. And not only did I say we've done now 21 U.S. Opens, but to do 20 U.S. Opens and then think, you're, think it's gone. And then to come back and know that you're not going to be able to do a championship that's been that's been set for your home club for years. I mean, uh, that was one of the biggest stinging effects of losing the package was the fact that Wingfoot got awarded that. You know, and I knew that it was coming to us, you know, coming to Wingfoot in 2020. So to, to be able to do a championship, a major championship on your on your home course, your home club where you, you know, you just know the members, you know how the place works. You just, you know, you're obviously a little biased about both courses. And I say not only West, but the East course is just a fabulous place. So I had to kind of walk this fine line between being the cheerleader. I didn't want to come across as a guy waving the pom poms every time. Um, you know, I, I had something to say about the course because obviously I am biased, but I do know the place. So I also wanted to get across to the listeners and the viewers that this is special because of this. And I wanted to kind of be able to share some things that only a member would know about and only a guy that had been across that property uh, hundreds and hundreds of times. So that was my biggest fear was was crossing the line between being a legitimate journalist broadcaster and and being a being the, the cheerleader in the press box, so to speak. But I, I think it, I think it came off okay. I had a lot, you know. Believe me, the first guys that would tell me were my fellow members if they thought I was uh, <laughs> going over the top a little bit. But they they seemed to all think it went well. We were thrilled how it went at NBC, the Golf Channel, and uh, you know who knows? Will I ever get a chance to do something like that again? You, you never know. But I just wanted it. I just wanted to soak in every single second on the air of it and. You know, even without fans, and boy, did we miss them! Uh, it was just still just one of the big thrills of my of my entire broadcast career to date. Well, take it from us; it sounded just fine. Um, That's good. <laughs> that helps coming from you guys as well. You're you're partners in this whole thing with us, and. And you love your championships, and so do we. So We sure do. I think it's important, though, to kind of refresh people's memories about Wingfoot because those of us in the Northeast, those of us close to the U.S. Open are so familiar with it. But it's not like a Pebble Beach that, you know, folks see year in and year out at the AT&T right. Pro-Am. And they hadn't seen it on TV since 2006. And Steve Rabideau's done some great things up there. So I think uh, I think it came across just fine. But being that you are there and play there all the time, what did you think about what Bryson DeChambeau was able to do? You know, I got, I can't tell you how many times I get asked by, you know, not only fellow members at Wingfoot, but just people outside of that uh, realm as well. Uh, what do you think of, you know, how's the course going to hold up? And then by this time, Bryson DeChambeau was ramping up and, you know, there was a lot of hype about him coming into that championship. And I, I told everybody that, 
I really thought I, I was in constant contact with uh, you. You mentioned Steve Rabideau, our, our golf course superintendent, because I was really, really curious how this whole golf course was going to be set up and would a Bryson DeChambeau have a chance with his style of game to just blast away at this that this gem of a golf course that you're not supposed to be able to get away much by doing that. So it was just this whole intrig- intriguing thing. So I got to say, guys, I, I was I was really surprised at how at, I don't want to say it easy was six under. It wasn't like it turned into the Bob Hope Chrysler Classic. So, you know, it was six under and then the next best was even par. So it really stood up well. I, I do. But I just think the Shambo had an exceptional week. And I don't know how many more majors he's going to win down the road, but I don't know if he will put together a more complete performance than he did at Wingfoot digging out of that rough and getting out of those greens. Some of the up and downs were just astounding and it was and then his putting was just off the charts. So he put it all together. And so it'll be interesting to see how that's that performance stacks up when DeChambeau's career is said and done, because I really truly believe it may end up being the best uh, performance uh, tee to green that, that he, that he turns in in a major. Yeah, Dan, I think a really important point that you made that it wasn't, you know, all the uh, attention was on the driving distance, right? Bryson bombing it out there and having the distance advantage. But to use a baseball analogy, he really pitched a complete game. I mean, he was top five in strokes gained with approaches to the green, around the green, putting. I mean, he had everything working that week. And uh, maybe not just a complete game, but almost a perfect game that week. It was was certainly fun to watch. Uh, But for those who were we're watching from home. Can you take us into the 18th tower? You know, as, as we're watching on TV, seeing Bryson hit an approach shot or Matthew Wolf hit a drive. What's going on behind the scenes? How many monitors are you looking at? How many voices are in your headset? What's happening that, that the viewer can't see? Well, in this COVID era, it, it's pretty trimmed down in there. We, we used to have more people in there. But for U.S. Open, we have as many as we possibly can put safely in there. So it was me, Gil Caps, Paul Azinger, and um, and Bill Fields, who is obviously a very respected golf writer who kind of keeps us honest and kind of looks things up for us if we need it. And then a and then a camera guy in there. So that's all that was in there. And uh, so it's basically calling it off a monitor. That's what you do in golf, and it never really has changed through the years. I mean, we'll we'll I'll look around behind me at eighteen once in a while and see what's going on behind me. Guys hitting approach shots from where our vantage point and our tower was at, at Wingfoot, just short right of the players. But 99% of the time we have two monitors. One is kind of a preview monitor that Zinger can look at and the guys in the truck can show him a little bit of a glimpse of, Hey, you want to see a replay? And he can kind of get ready to telestrate it kind of like they do in football, like mm-hmm. a Chris Collins work yep. or somebody like that. They can constantly preview the, 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 what they, the, what they're going to see and show the audience just before the audience sees it. So they kind of have a little bit of a uh, advantage there to kind of show them what they want to show them. And so that's kind of the deal. You know, we're just, we're watching like the people at home. And so I think that's kind of the style of our team is modeled after that. We, we hope and strive to have the feel and Tommy Roy, our producer, we always talk about it. Just have a conversation like you're sitting in the living room or the, or the family room of whoever is listening out there and that you're, you're just going to add some expertise to what these guys are talking about. Make it a, ongoing kind of round the horn conversation. And that's always been the style of our broadcasts. And I, 
I think people enjoy that aspect of we're just hanging out with you, watching what you're watching and hoping to enhance it with uh, some great research and some good stats when they, when they, when, when they're needed and some good analysis by guys that uh, have won at the highest level, like Azinger and the rest of our crew. Yeah, Dan, I think that's, that's really well put. I mean, I know certainly for myself watching the, uh, the golfers are the main event, but you know, if you guys can add a little bit of context and, uh, and and add a little bit to the broadcast, I think that certainly helps. You mentioned Chris Collinsworth, a football broadcaster uh, for Sunday Night Football. You've called a variety of sports as a broadcaster, including football, basketball, tennis. Dave mentioned these are the top skiing, figure skating, swimming. What makes golf unique in terms of, of broadcasting a sport compared to any of those other sports we mentioned? That's a that's a great question, and I do get asked that uh, quite a bit through the years. I first of all, I think to understand what my answer is going to be, I think you got to play golf. <laughs> I think you got to I think you got to play this crazy wacky game, immerse yourself in it, fall in love with it, and make it kind of a a lifetime hobby, so to speak. No offense to Kevin Kisner, who calls it it's not a hobby for those guys, that's for sure, but. I, I think with that said, I think what sets golf apart, and again, I think people that play it understand it, is that it is such a a self-endeavor, meaning it is you. You have yep. your caddy out there, but it is all on you. It's all on a tennis player. I've done a lot of tennis, and there's two players yep. playing out there, but I don't think there's a game that relies more upon precision and it's just the whole style of the game. It's like the guy hits a good drive and he's got, you know, three minutes to think about the next shot. And I think that whole buildup to it and the ability for the, for the real champions to focus in with a golf shot that matters, that's got to be hit so precise and with pressure on the line and then knowing that at any point, and we all go through it, it can all come unraveled. And I don't think, I, I, I really believe that there's no other sport that can be as embarrassing and as tough to manage when things are not going well than golf. We've all seen it. And, we, and I think, to just add to that fact, I think we've seen players have moments like that that never, ever recover. And so I think that's part of the, the whole, you know, intrigue of the game is that you're all alone. No one's there to help you. And man, sometimes the, the, the Canyon gets so deep that you don't think you're ever going to be able to find your way out of it. I think that's, I think that that's the intriguing part about it. When somebody's coming up 18, trying to put away a golf tournament and it's all on them to get it done. I, I think that dynamic that we have the opportunity and privilege to show at all these big championships is just tremendous. And I don't think any other sport rivals it. I, I'm not saying that no other sport is, is as exciting, but I just think golf is different in that respect. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, certainly we've all felt that as players, whether we're, you know, in front of tens of thousands of fans or, or just out for a weekend round, you know, when you're over that shot, the silence can be deafening. A lot goes on inside your head as you're standing over a shot. And certainly with the pressure of the U.S. Open uh, coming down at the end, it can be very, very challenging. Now, yeah, you that's mentioned, a great point. The uh, silence, the silence. I think you hit it on the head with another great point is the silence of it. And I know that, you know, in this day and age, we want to have a little bit more noise, maybe at times at a Ryder Cup, you hear the guys, whip, you know, whipping up the crowd. But that silence and that drama and then the ability to come through and, you know, every, you know, the microscope's on you and, 
you know, all the viewers are watching is uh, is pretty incredible to pull off. And Dan, you, you mentioned that you need to be a golfer, or at least have some golf knowledge to, to kind of do what you do, you know, to kind of speak the language of golf. You know, what kind of golfer is Dan Hicks? What's what's the <laughs> handicap? How many rounds are you getting in per year? Give us a little scouting report, strengths and, uh, and weaknesses in the game. Well, full disclosure here, guys, uh, I played more golf this year than at any point in any year of my entire life. And obviously that was due to the, the unfortunate, but silver lining of, of COVID in some ways. So, um, I love to play as much as I can. The, the weather here in the Northeast, we were blessed with, you know, well into November here of, of being able to play. So what kind of golfer am I? First of all, I did not grow up playing the game. I just dabbled in it a little bit. I used to mess around a little bit around the other sports that I played. But I hurt my knee playing basketball um, right out of college, and I used to play a ton of basketball in leagues. I just That's when I just kind of threw myself into it. I was still working out in Tucson, Arizona, where you could play year-round. Got absolutely crazy about the game and just discovered what a fascinating game it is. So I got, you know, I was late in life to the game. Best handicap I've ever had is a six. I'm an eight right now, which is, I should be better since I – I've, I've played more golf, but you know how that goes, guys. Sometimes the more golf you play, you, you go down that other <laughs> way for a while until you figure it out again. Yep. So um, I've, I've, I've lost a little distance as the years have gone on, I, I, and I just think that I'm not, I'm not hitting it as square as I should off the tee. My short game's pretty good. I got a pretty good wedge game because I'm forced to because at wing foot, especially where I do most of my playing, you're going to miss a lot of greens and you better have a short game or it could be a very, very long day. So I think that golf course and playing it has helped in that regard. Could be a better putter. I'm not consistent enough, but uh, that's kind of a thumbnail sketch of, uh, of, of my golf game. So anyway, there you go. Well, I just took some notes in case we ever have a USGA NBC <laughs> outing. <laughs> hey, let's revive it, right? We, the old we, markup. We have to. We have to. Yeah. Well, you talk about yourself as a player and talk about how to call golf off the monitors and some of the iconic calls you've had. None, in my estimation, has been more iconic in golf than 2008 at Torrey Pines. And for those of you that don't remember it, I'm not sure how you could forget. Here it is. Dan, I'm sure, you know, people ask you what it's like calling golf. I'm sure people have asked you a thousand times what went through your head and how that unfolded in the booth. But I'll be the guy to ask you one more time. <laughs> Take us through that moment, not only the gravity of the moment of Tiger Woods in the U.S. Open, but what went into that call? Well, first of all, we were blessed with a situation where we had Tiger Woods. And, you, you know, everybody that's watching through the years, you just you never know what you're going to get. But in the in the end, you better not underestimate him. So there was that whole aura of the whole championship and limping along. And you know, we could go on and on just about the first, you know, 71 holes before we got to the 72nd hole that you guys referred to. So, you know, getting to that 72nd hole, I'll, I'll never forget the tension and the excitement and the anxiety of the moment. And as I looked out around of the 30,000, 35,000 or so that were ringed around the 18th green and Tiger needs to make this putt to get into the playoff with Rocco. 
I'm just kind of absorbing it. You know, Roger's done his, his, you know, read of the putt. Johnny's already said what he's had to say. And we kind of had this moment where we could just kind of take a deep breath. And I, I look over at Johnny and like, he's kind of got this look on his face. Like, here we go. This is either, you know, this is this, this could be really good. But the overwhelming feeling I got was that, I mean, I, I expected to make this and everybody that's watching that I see around the green is just kind of, they've got this just anticipation look and absolute dead silence. I just, the overwhelming feeling and thought was, I think everybody expects him to make it. So as the ball is tumbling toward the hole, I'm, I'm just kind of have this ex, expect kind of, you know, verbiage in my mind. And then when the ball rolls in, it just kind of came right out of me just at the, at that very moment, expect anything different because it's Tiger Woods. It's a U.S. open. It's a major championship. It's a huge moment. And he expect, you know, did you expect the guy to miss it? No, you know, you expect him to make it. So that was kind of the, the feeling that you're trying to tap into as an announcer. And I've always tried to do that. I haven't really thought about what I'm, I'm going to say much at all, other than just kind of what I've described, just soaking in the moment and, the, and what you're feeling at the time and just kind of let it, let it flow. And, and I was fortunate to hopefully enhance the moment and, it was, you know, it, it's, it's become, uh, it's become kind of my calling card. People ask about my favorites, Paul, and that certainly is, you know, right on the top of the list. That leads me to my next kind of twofold question. One is when did you realize how iconic that call was? And also do people kind of call you out on that? Have you ever been seen in the airport and anyone just kind of barks at you? Expect anything different? <laughs> I, I have heard, I have heard <laughs> a few of those. Uh, definitely. Uh, through the years I have, and I, and I, and that's what everybody, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll refer to something. We'll be even playing a casual round of golf and maybe I'll make a putt, you know, from 25 feet and somebody will say, expect anything different, you know? So it's, it's been fun to kind of relive it in that way. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I just, I, at the moment you don't know it's going to be, it's going to live on like it has, because first right. of all, Tiger Woods had to win the playoff the next day. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, if Tiger Woods doesn't win the championship it becomes a nice moment but it becomes Rocco's US Open and this underdog who yeah. took down Tiger Woods that becomes the indelible story and moment and so who knows what what Rocco would have produced in in the playoff to win if he had had that opportunity which he did it went 92 holes or whatever it did but so i think at the moment no you don't think it's going to you know you're happy with it it went well and i'll never forget we were coming out of the tower. Remember Saturday, Tiger made two Eagles on the back nine. Remember at Torrey Pines. So we came out of the tower and I looked over at Johnny and I told the story uh, a few times before I looked over at Johnny and I said, don't ever forget today. Cause I just don't think anything's going to be better than this. You know, Tiger shot like 30 (laughs) on the back or something like that. So then I get into the compound, the NBC compound. I see Tommy Roy and, you know, we exchange a big hug and he's like, wow, that was incredible. Because you know, the only way that would be any better is if it happened on Sunday. And I thought, okay, great. You know, so, so then we get, we do the tiger thing and he makes the pot and we, we get ready for a playoff the next day on Monday. And I walk out of the tower on Sunday and I go, Johnny, forget what I said yesterday, because today <laughs> I don't think it's going to get any better than, than what we saw. And Tommy Roy agreed, you know, as we saw him again Sunday and afternoon, late afternoon. So yeah, you don't know it's gonna, it's going to carry on like that, but it had all the ingredients guys. It had a, it had a must make, it had a must make putt. 
to continue uh, a major championship run. Believe it or not, he was stuck on 14 for a long time, wasn't he? And in those days, we thought, you know, okay, a couple more years or so, and he's going to pass Jack. I mean, that's still the feeling, even though Tiger got a bad knee, that we were all feeling. But uh, little did we know that it would kind of carry on. I think it carried on even more because Tiger didn't win another major for a long time. And so I think it had a lot of those ingredients that kind of kept it in our memories. Yeah, Dan, I, w- I was there greenside in 2008 as an intern for the USGA at the time and just watching and kind of like you described it. I mean, you, you kind of look around to some people standing next to you after the puck goes in and just say, wow, it's like you you couldn't believe it. But at the same time, you know, there was no other result that was possibly going to happen. It seemed like you could see the from where I was, the, the ball kind of wobbling a little bit and bouncing. But there was yeah, really no doubt it was, it was just nuts. And our, our crew. I think also, too, all credit to our crew that covered it. And Tommy is a guy in there calling the replays. I mean, that shot right above Tiger Woods when he looks at the sky with both fists, I mean, it's just electric. And, and Tommy, who's, who's, who's just incredible at what he does, just, just absolutely nailed every moment, the ball rolling. The, and, and Johnny and I just kind of went silent for a while and let those guys in the truck do their magic. And I think that also makes it even more memorable because if they had kind of botched it a little bit and not, not made it as impressive as it was, um, I, I don't think it would have been quite as uh, memorable. Well, and that's that's the beauty of your call too, right? The economy of words. It's three words and then you yeah. just you lay out. You go silent because the moment says it all. And that's yeah. what made it so good. And, and Dan, just thinking summer of 2008, you talked about mid-June, you're in San Diego, Torrey Pines, Tiger wins in the one leg. And then in July, you're in Beijing broadcasting swimming swimming in the Olympics, and Michael Phelps wins eight gold medals. Most broadcasters would be lucky to get one of those moments in their careers, and you get two within the span of a month. It, it was really incredible. How do you put into, into perspective what a Tiger has done and what Michael Phelps have done, the greats of the game, what they have done to kind of transcend their sports, that you saw these great moments in the span of about 30 days in 2008? Yeah, you know, you, 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 you'd spend a lifetime doing what I do, and then the, the two probably greatest events you get the chance to do with the, with the two greatest performances that you've ever seen come in that span, that short of a span. It's just amazing, the summer of 2008. Uh, you know, we had the incredible fortune of following both those guys, Tiger Woods and Michael Phelps, from the very beginning to the very end. Phelps, obviously, his career's over. Tiger's still fashioning the last, you know, maybe chapter of it now, but the fact that we had Tiger Woods and two of his three U S amateurs with you guys, when we took over the package mm-hmm. in 95 tiger won at pumpkin Ridge in 96 and he won Newport in 95. So we started with, you know, he was a teenager. And so we went full arc with him, Michael Phelps, you know, Rowdy Gaines and I called his uh, 2000 Olympics in Sydney. That was the second Olympics uh-huh. that I had a chance to call swimming. And Michael Phelps, at the age of 15, finishes fourth in the 200 fly. And you're thinking, wow, at the age of 15, like this guy's going to be good. So we take him the whole way. Five Olympics later, we've done all of Michael Phelps' 28 Olympic medals, 23 gold. So those two guys are so similar in the way their careers went. They both learned a lot about themselves along the way. There's that parallel as well. But the bottom line is, at the end of the day, they're the two greatest champions of their respective sports, in my opinion. There's no doubt about it. And the fact that we got to chronicle them 
from the very beginning all the way to the end is is amazing because inevitably a lot of times in this business you kind of catch maybe you catch Joe Montana at the end or you know maybe you catch Muhammad Ali you know in the last uh, five years of his career but we went full arc with these guys and that's what made it even uh, even unbelievable more unbelievable yeah and you got to call that amazing 2000 U.S. Open you know first as lead play-by-play and yeah. you see him just lap the field uh in what was just an incredible week out there and obviously returning to Pebble in a couple years for another U.S. Open but before that we have a December major which you alluded to in the intro it's been over 90 years the 1929 PGA Championship since there was a major championship in December what are you looking forward to as just kind of the end of 20 2020 all that it's been to end it with a with a big major down in houston well you say big major it this is as in what i used to enjoy so much about doing the u.s women's open was and the fact that i'm so excited about doing it again is without a doubt it's the biggest championship they play we used to have our production meeting you know before the before the week ensued before the first round happened and we would always say it's this is so cool because there's not a lot of other events and sports that you can truly say that about even in golf this is clearly the biggest event they play um the u.s women's open it just matters the most to these women i i think it's it speaks for itself the history of it and if you ask them all which one they'd want to win the most you know i think the 8 day inspiration obviously has become a very big event but it's not the u.s women's open and i Looking so forward to um, hearing that, hearing our iconic music uh, back on a U.S. Women's Open at Champions. Uh, I'm looking forward to getting back to that club, getting back to Houston where I've spent a lot of time. Uh, I've got family there. My mother-in-law's there. Uh, Jackie Burke, the oldest living Masters champion, is still the guy out there. There's a lot of cool things about Champions. And I think it's going to be neat. Um, not that we'd want to have it every year around the holidays, but I think it. I think it could be. Like, like the U.S. Open was special. I think this could really be special. Even without the spectators, it, it's going to be neat to cap off the year with a final major champion coming in the biggest women's event they play. I agree. And, you know, I give kudos to my colleagues at the USJ and obviously your colleagues at NBC that I work closely with in getting ready for this, you know, for, you know, COVID aside, because of daylight Thursday and Friday going to be played on two courses, Cypress Creek and Jackrabbit down at Champions. You talk about the history, what the Burke family has meant to golf in this country uh, and to be able to celebrate the 75th anniversary of the U.S. Women's Open and all the iconic moments uh, that have gone along with that championship for, for so long. It's going to be really, really special. So with that, we look forward to seeing you down there, Dan, and uh, I hope everyone travels safe. I know we still have some work to do, production meetings and everything, so I'll see you on those, and uh, we thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, guys. It was so good uh, getting back, doing USGA events. That amateur at Bandon Dunes was just terrific. Uh, I kind of forgot how much I loved doing those, and it right on through the U.S. Open, and it ended off with uh, Women's Open down in Houston. I look forward to Seeing all you guys there, and uh, and uh, hopefully uh, this will be, uh, you know, maybe hopefully the last one we do uh, without spectators, but uh, it still should be good. Look forward to seeing you guys as well. Yeah, definitely look forward to it. And a reminder to everyone out there that the U.S. Women's Open is being played next week. Yes, next week, December 10th through the 13th, NBC Universal will present more than 25 hours of live coverage across NBC, Golf Channel, and Peacock. And on top of it, there's going to be more than 50 hours of U.S. Women's Open related programming across all of the NBC Universal networks. Golf's greatest rounds, Golf Central. Pre-
pre- and post-game shows, a Wednesday practice round show, and much, much more. So if you thought the major championship season was over, you are mistaken. And if you can't wait until then, you can head to the USJ's YouTube page or the USJ streaming app on Apple TV, Roku, and Amazon Fire right now. Find a ton of content around the U.S. Women's Open and relive some of the most iconic moments in the championship's illustrious history. So with that, thank you again, everyone out there for joining us. For my co-host, Mike Trosel, I'm Dave Giancola, and we will talk to you next time.